Welcome to the Marist Review. I am so happy to be joined today by Gabriela Garcia, who is the recipient of a Rona Jaffe Foundation Writers Award and a Steinbeck Fellowship from San Jose State University. Her fiction and poetry have appeared in Best American Poetry, Tin House, Ziziva, Iowa Review, and elsewhere. She received an MFA in fiction from Purdue and lives in the Bay Area. Of Women and Salt is her first novel, and it is stunning. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining. Thank you. So happy to be here. I feel like I know a lot about your personal background. And obviously, your debut novel is not a book about you and these characters are not you. But tell me about which elements from your own life have made their way into this story. Yeah, so like you said, it's, um, it's really fiction and not autobiographical. But of course, in all of my writing, there are always pieces of me. Um, and I think, you know, some of the, uh, some of the sort of overarching ideas that the book touches upon are things that I was thinking about at the time for a number of reasons. So um, for example, there's, you know, a chapter that takes place in a detention center. And um, when I started writing some of the snippets that eventually became that chapter, I was working as an organizer and I was doing um, mainly deportation defense work and um, working with a lot of women in family detention centers in Texas. Um, so, you know, that was certainly something that was on my mind yes. that came into my writing. Um, and I think, you know, so I'm the daughter of a Cuban mother and a Mexican father. Um, and I think, you know, I was thinking a lot about um, Latinx-ness, Latinidad, and um, how it's how it's not a monolithic or even cohesive identity. Right. Um, and, you know, the characters in the novel uh, come from a variety of different backgrounds. There's a Cuban family and a Salvadoran family whose lives sort of intersect in Miami. And I think, you know, that's something that I was, that I was thinking about a lot, you know, that, um, I hadn't read uh, fiction in Miami that sort of portrayed the community the way that I saw it growing up, um, the ways, you know, thinking really about sort of race and class and privilege and those divisions that existed um, within my community in particular. So yeah, there are a lot of, there are a lot of different things that I was thinking about as I was writing this that certainly pertain to my own identity and experience. One of the other things that um, I know about you <laughs> is that you um, visited Cuba quite a bit as you were growing up. And yeah. So, and, and, and I think this explains, you open the book with just a really stunning chapter um, about a cigar factory worker who gets to listen to the stories um, that this reader, is that what you would mm -hmm. call? Um, yeah, lectores. Uh -huh. Yes, um, tells while she's busy at work. And I first came across this um, profession in Valeria Luiselli's uh, novella. Um, and, and it seems like that it's such a strange, wonderful tradition of, of allowing um, <laughs> the small dignity of hearing about a way to escape, even if you are stuck in a factory. 
Yeah. I mean, I think I, I've always, yeah, I've always been been sort of fascinated by the role of the lector in, in Cuban cigar factories, um, in part because I, I, my family was really into cigars growing up. Um, so I feel like I was always seeing a lot of these cigars like Monte Cristos and Romeo y Julietas. And I, I didn't know sort of the history of it. I didn't know that they were named literally um, on some of the books that, that tobacco yeah. workers were really interested in, um, in these cigar factories. And that chapter that opens up in a cigar factory, I actually, when I was on a trip to Cuba, went to a museum exhibit that was displaying some some of these letters from Victor Hugo to independence fighters and workers um, in Cuba in the 19th century. And I was super fascinated by that sort of dialogue between um, an author and and the and, and workers and the political situation in Cuba at the time. And um, it was just a really interesting interplay to me. And so like that chapter incorporates some of those actual correspond, some of that actual correspondence and some, um, you know, newspaper articles, they're all like based on, you know, real stuff that I sort of uncovered when I was doing that research. Um, but yeah, it, it's a really sort of fascinating interplay between the literary and um, the the working class in, in Cuba at that time. Um, and then I was also just sort of, you know, I was I was thinking about that, about how how interesting that sort of conversation was. But I I also just kept kept on thinking about how all of almost all of these books that were championed during that time were coming from, you know, mostly European right. white male writers, you know. Um, and I started to imagine what it would be like to be um a, a woman of color in that workshop and sort of finding, you know, um, you know, inspiration or knowledge in that literary conversation, but also being aware of the fact that you're sort of only getting it through that one gaze. Um, and so, you know, I was thinking a lot about stories and in this whole book and how they function, how they're passed down, whether any kind of like reclamation is possible. And so that felt like an interesting entry point for me. Yeah, the the idea that Les Miserables could be relatable in in, in many ways, especially to the workers in, in, in the factory, but also incredibly lacking in the way that most books in the canon are, right? Because like that they, most books in the canon contain one experience, one kind of life. Um, tell me a little bit about the book Cecilia Valdez. Yeah, so that was um, another book that uh, was, you know, very present during that time um, in Cuba and also like in, in the cigar factories. Um, and it was, it sort of, again, like thinking about Maria Isabel and how she's um, understanding herself through literature. Like it's a book that's centered around um, uh, like a mixed race protagonist who's a woman in Cuba. 
um, and that touches upon issues of, of race and class um, and slavery at that time, um, but written by a, a white Spanish descended Cuban man, you know? Um, and it's a book that that's really influential in Cuba. Like in Cuba, there are, you know, statues of Cecilia Valdez of the character um, in, in Vieja Habana. And there's like, you know, there's just like, you know, my mom grew up learning about this book. It's, it's mm. like a sort of part of the Cuban canon. Um, <laughs> but yeah, again, it's sort of, it's, it's sort of that, that reality that she's, um, you know, thinking about herself and her place in this literature, but also aware of how little voice and agency she has within that literature as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then we see her descendants um, and you, you wrote this very short book that contains so many different layers and so many different um, places in history. Um, and we kind of get to see who can and cannot tell their own stories and how that affects their, their lives. Tell me a little bit about um, getting to the, the, I guess, youngest descendant, the, the, the final line um, with Jeanette and, and shaping her character because she, I guess if this book has a main character, that, that would be her. Yeah, I think um, I think when I started writing, I wasn't sure if there was going to be like one voice that sort of um, I kept returning to. But yeah, it, it did end up being Jeanette, the the youngest one in the Cuban family. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I was thinking about her own story and how much it's shaped. Um, as much by the stories that she's sort of telling herself about herself mm -hmm. and equally the stories that she doesn't know, you know? Right. Um, and so I think I was, I was thinking a lot about that on like a individual level, you know, how much family history and um, intergenerational trauma can shape someone um, even if they're not fully aware of all of the layers and also on a larger scale, how, you know, larger historical forces um, shape individual lives, even if you're not aware of that history. So Jeanette is a young Cuban woman in Miami and she's struggling with addiction, which seems to me to be passed down in family, just almost like trauma does. Um, tell me about the decision to portray her addiction? I wanted to um, portray her struggling with with substance use, but I also wanted, you know, I think sometimes narratives about addiction sort of can reduce a character solely mm -hmm. to their addiction. And I wanted to show all the other layers of, of her life and also, um, you know, part of her sort of healing and recovery is stunted by the fact that um, 
a lot of these conversations that should happen don't happen, you know, and a lot of that, um, like you said, you know, intergenerational trauma, like isn't, isn't talked about, you know, there's all of this like family silence, there's, um, there's these, these ways that, um, you know, she's seeking out these sort of unhealthy coping mechanisms, but, um, there are just all these other layers that aren't, aren't addressed. And so in an attempt to address them partially, at least, um, she, she takes a trip to, to Cuba, um, where her grandmother and her cousin and some other family live. Um, I like the idea that she goes to Cuba to perhaps find some answers while meanwhile her cousin who lives there thinks that migrating to America is is the thing that's going to solve problems. Yeah, and I think her cousin like yeah, she's she's not even so it's not even so much migrating to the US as like you know, she's thought she just wants to make money and, you know, possibly go back to Cuba or whatever. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I was really interested in sort of port- portraying that experience of a, you know, first generation daughter of immigrants um, who's never been to her parents' home country, traveling back and having certain expectations about what that place will mean to her, or how she'll connect to it. And then sort of, you know, coming up against a reality that's different than what she expected. And then also, you know, getting getting that perspective from her cousin, which is so different. And she sort of, she sort of has her own um, ideas about tourists and, you know, who come to Cuba and um, what that means to her and other Cubans. And so, yeah, I was, I was really interested in sort of exploring those tensions that I think um, exists for for a lot of um, first generation children of immigrants, regardless of you know what what country it is, but also you know the particularities of of Cuba as a place that sort of has this really fraught relationship with the U.S., but also um, you know has has a lot of U.S. tourism, particularly in in recent years, that's sort of, you know, it's it's just there's this constant sort of conversation between U.S. people and Cubans. And yeah, I was sort of interested in exploring some of that. Yeah. And the tourist economy seems to be the thing that is bringing money into Cuba. And yet it's also the thing that is um, marring it or making it the people who, who visit are, are not always respectful of, of where they are and, and who they're encountering. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that's true of, you know, a lot of tourist, tourist economies, you yeah. know, there's a, there's a, a tension between, um, you know, it's and it's based in colonialism and it's based in, you know, economic disparities and just the kind of economic power that tourists have in, in a country. And then 
um, the expectations that exist. And yeah, I think it's, it's really, it's really complex. And also just how, how those societies are shaped by this constant interplay of, of U.S. tourism. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that particularly surprises Jeanette when she is in Cuba is how blatantly racist her, her grandmother is. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of the colorism that exists in, in Cuba and in Miami? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of, I think, in the book, it's sort of like two sides of the same coin, you know, like in in Cuba, um, you know, she encounters this sort of blatant kind of, you know, passing comments um, and she sort of thinks she's like above it, you know, she's very like critical and judgmental um, of the way her grandmother uh, acts. And then, but then in a moment where, not to like give away things about the book, but like in a moment where she sort of, you know, when she steals something and she has um, an opportunity to, to be honest about what's going on, she chooses to stay silent. You know, she chooses to sort of fall back on her own uh, proximity to whiteness and the innocence that that sort of confers. And so, you know, she, she thinks she's like so above this and yet, you know, she in that moment um, chooses whiteness. Um, or rather chooses to, to lean on her whiteness. And, um, and, and, you know, in, she's also thinking about how in Miami it's, so I think the, the thing that's different in Cuba is that the sort of, um, large national conversation that, that exists here around race and racism, um, has has never happened in Cuba on a large scale um, in part purposefully because a lot of the the thinking around the Cuban revolution was that eliminating class differences would sort of stamp out racism and anti-blackness specifically. Um, so those sort of large scale dialogues around race like, don't, you know, haven't happened in Cuba, even though there are really, really blatant ways that, um, that anti-Blackness shapes the country and who's in power. And, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. And as a result of that, like, yeah, you know, you'll hear people just be a lot more blatant than sort of, you know, polite liberal white society in the, in the US will be, you know, people will, will, you know, tell jokes or make comments. Um, and then, you know, there's things like, yeah, there's just, there's just a lot of blatant anti-blackness. Um, and, but yeah, I, I don't, like I said, I think it's not, I think it's just two sides of the same coin where here we have this like, nationwide dialogue right. and yet you know cuban-american society in miami is is deeply um 
divided. There's, you know, a history of like redlining black Cubans from white Cuban communities in Miami. And there's just a lot of, a lot that's happening um, there. So yeah, I sort of wanted to, I, I thought Jeanette was sort of a vehicle to, to both sides of that and sort of, sort of complicit in a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Sure. One of the, the things that you did was you introduce Anna and her mother, Gloria, um, in 2014. Um, Anna and her mother, Gloria, are sent to a detention center in Texas while President Obama is in office. Tell me about that decision. Yeah, I mean, I, I started writing, I mean, I wrote that chapter before I ever had any idea that Trump would would possibly be president, you know? So um, in part, that's why that that's set during that time. Um, and also because that's actually the time period in which I was doing a lot of this work and, um, you know, talking to a lot of these women in detention. And yeah, I mean, there was such a, a, a huge uptick in deportations and detention and these family detention centers um, came into existence, you know, around that time around in under Obama's administration and um, some, you know, a lot of what what was what's happened under Trump was sort of is sort of coming out of a lot of that, you know, like, there were, you know, children in these family detention centers, there were, um, family separations happening. So, you know, um, sort of set the stage for for a lot of what would come. And I think, I, you know, I, I just felt that it that it was important to represent, represent what was actually happening during that time. Yeah, because now here we are under President Biden. And it certainly doesn't seem like it's going to get any better anytime soon. Am I wrong? Yeah. Yeah, no. And, you know, there's still, there are still a lot of these things happening right now. Um, Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that the biggest difference um, under Obama's administration was just that when I was doing this organizing work was that it was really difficult to get any kind of large scale media attention on a lot of what was happening, you know, um, and so, you know, my, my fear is that we'll sort of go back to that. Once we've seen it, I don't, I, I can't imagine choosing to go back to that, but, um, I guess that's what we have to stay vigilant. And so in Anna and Gloria's deportation, they are deported to Mexico, even though <laughs> they are El Salvadorian and are, are meant to somehow make their way back to their home country, which which is nearly impossible. Tell me about deportations of Latin America people to Mexico and, and, and what that environment is like. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of, based that on like, like an actual um, case that I that I worked on where that happened. Um, And there were, you know, a a few 
cases like that, that I heard about during that time where people were just, um, you know, driven into, into Mexico, even if they were from various Central American countries and just sort of dropped there. Um, and I think that that continues to happen sometimes. Um, I, yeah. And I think now there's actually, I think they're actually like systematically doing that now, like working with the Mexican government um, and just dropping people off there. But yeah, um, it's, you know, I think another thing that I sort of touch on in those chapters is how, um, you know, Mexican authorities and um, some Mexicans can also sort of perpetuate these these anti-immigrant sentiments and um, can be a hostile environment. Um, and I, I've seen a lot of that too, because my, the, the sort of town where my father grew up in, Irapuato, um, my grandmother's house is, runs like parallel to um, railroad tracks where La Bestia, like the, the train that takes a lot of um, migrants to the border, um, runs right, right behind that. And so, um, you know, there's a significant population of Central Americans in, you know, there. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen some of those attitudes that that are portrayed in the books played out. One theme that you address in the book um, is the idea of saviorship in, in some ways. And I'm wondering if you could talk about having a an unclear, having ambivalent mothers, having um, no one who is pure hero in this story. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm always sort of interested in complex, multi-dimensional characters, you know? I think most of the characters are flawed in some way, um, you know, are sometimes brave, are sometimes weak, are sometimes, you know, acting out of, out of you know, are just, are just, you know, flawed characters. And I think in particular, I sort of wanted to write against the trope that exists um, that sort of paints all immigrant mothers as um, sacrificing and suffering. And not to say that, you know, the, the mothers in the, in the book don't suffer or sacrifice, but they are sort of, you know, I wanted to portray their full humanity beyond their motherhood. Um, and, you know, you Gloria, some yeah sometimes wonders if she wants to be a mother um or thinks about all the other things that she wishes she could be doing and um you know Carmen isn't always thinking of her daughter before herself and you know I, I wanted to sort of portray the complexities of motherhood too um and to really sort of right against against that idea and yeah the book also touches on sort of ideas of of um saviorship of people sort of coming in from the outside um thinking that you know they they know something about someone you know right. um 
and that plays out in various ways. You know, that plays out with like the Christian missionaries in Salvador that Gloria thinks about and that, you know, plays out in some ways with Jeanette going back to Cuba and what she thinks she knows about Cubans and, um, you know, the American expat in the U.S. expat in Mexico and her attitudes towards Mexicans. And yeah, I was I was sort of really interested in in writing against that that gaze too. Gabriella, I have a, a straight up craft question for you. Um, <laughs> because you have written this book that feels sweeping and epic and it's 200 pages. Tell me about writing a minimalist epic. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not even sure if it's minimalist because I feel like the language Yeah, the language, is, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, like I, I sort of, I was really playing with style and form and thinking about, you know, every chapter sort of having its own really different voice. And sometimes like even within one character, the perspective um, or the tense switches in a chapter it like from one chapter to the next mm -hmm. um yeah I guess I was I, I guess I was less interested in a sort of traditional saga or epic that portray you know follows every turn of, in a in a family history and more interested in sort of the echoes that can happen across time or the sort of, you know, glimpses of the historical that can, that inform the presence. Um, and it's a book that's mainly takes place in, you know, modern times. Like there are like, maybe there are like mainly two historical chapters that go into the further past. Um, but yeah, I, and I was also sort of interested in not portraying everything and it's sort of what what those spaces of unknowing also contribute to the story um so yeah i think the challenge was just thinking about what i what i did want to you know sort of glance at and and how much information was necessary to make it feel cohesive but not wanting it to be everything um, and then I think I also really knew that I sort of did not want to write like a traditional Western storytelling structure um, that I that I really wanted to think about other ways to tell stories and how they can function. Thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Before we go, would you like to recommend a book or two to our audience? Yeah, so one one book that I'm reading uh, right now and really enjoying is a Brother, Sister, Mother Explorer by Jamie Figueroa. Um, and it's just it it's um, just this really beautifully written book. The sentences are really great. The language is really beautiful and lush. Um, and it's about a, a tourist town and um a family's grief and it's really it's really good um and then I'm also I also started reading Revival Season by Monica West um which is a sort a coming of age story um a daughter of a preacher and um 
just explores a, a lot of really interesting questions about family and faith and it's it's really well written as well well thank you so much this has been a pleasure yeah this is great thank you for listening to the maris review and check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today and please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts